Hi, this is The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation UK with me, Annabelle Bly. And me, Will DeFratis. Thanks for tuning in to the second part of our podcast on the theme of rebooting. This episode, we will be bringing you more stories involving fresh starts and rebrands. To recap on some of the basics from part one, we first looked at computers. And when it comes to computers, it turns out rebooting is all about wiping the site clean to fix any glitches in the system. However, a future without reboots is not impossible. It's all a question of money, really. We could make every computer run forever if we were prepared to spend unlimited amounts of cash to make it go. I mean, people that make aeroplanes and nuclear reactors do this, but people that make work processors are more concerned with adding new features and extra bits to entice us into buying the latest version rather than making them completely perfect. That's Rob Miles. He's a lecturer in computer science at the University of Hull. But it's not just computers that have room for improvement. Plenty of businesses do too. This episode, we hone in on one that's gone through a huge facelift in recent years. We're also going to hear about a politician who was booted out of office in 2012 and is now trying to position himself as the man who can save France. But first, we start at the end. What if the world as we know it ceased to exist? It could be a nuclear apocalypse a superbug that wipes out most of humanity, or even a catastrophic asteroid like the one that took out the dinosaurs. Our science editor Miriam Frankel explored whether life on Earth could reboot itself. But spoiler alert, things will get worse before they get better. It's time to wake up to the fact that the world may one day end. Are you prepared for the apocalypse? You could, after all, be one of the few who survived something like a devastating nuclear disaster and a bleak nuclear winter, wiping out society as we know it. With a few resourceful people around, it may be possible to reverse this doomsday scenario and reboot civilization. But what if humans, and perhaps all life, were completely wiped out, leaving the bells to toll for the very last time. Could evolution restart and give rise to the diversity of life we see today? Maybe even intelligent life? Let's start with the least scary scenario, the one where some humans survive. To find out how they could reorganize, we spoke to Lewis Darknell, an astrobiologist at the University of Westminster, who has written a book called The Knowledge, how to rebuild our world from scratch. So civilizations collapsed. You've woken up the morning after the night before the world, as you know, it ended. You've, you've got some kind of post-apocalyptic hangover. But of course, you're not going to need to start farming on, on the very first day. There's, there'll be a lot of stuff just left lying around. There'll be a grace period uh, after the apocalypse where your small community survivors can scavenge and forage for what you need before you have to know how to do it yourself. That, that's your grace period while you work things out. So, for example, and, and this is one slightly frivolous example, if I were to lock you uh, in an average supermarket and throw away the key, how long could you survive for before you've either eaten all that food in the supermarket or gone off before you get around to eating it? And I worked this out. I went to the average supermarket and I went down every aisle, counted up the subsistence and the food and nutrition on the shelves there, divided that by the amount you need to eat per day. And the answer comes out that a single supermarket can support one person for 55 years or 63 years if you're happy to eat all the canned dog food and cat food as well. 
as well as working out how to survive the immediate aftermath of an apocalypse, Lewis also has a few ideas about the things we'd need if we were to get civilization going again. Civilization and, and cities provide all the things that we need to, to go about our day-to-day lives and survive. Civilization provides for you the food that you eat, industrialized agriculture provides the energy you use, whether that's electricity to turn on your lights or gas uh, coming into your kitchen to, to cook your food so you don't have to resort to campfires like we did hundreds of thousands of years ago. So if, if civilization were to collapse, essentially all those things that we just take for granted today would stop happening. So what I explore in the knowledge is, well, okay, how would you go about doing all that stuff for yourself? But also importantly, how that our current civilization developed and progressed over hundreds of years or thousands of years. What were the key scientific discoveries and the uh, technological inventions that enabled us to build the modern world and live the way that we do? So in the aftermath of an apocalypse, you'd want to go through that same process. You'd want to pick yourself up, brush off the dust, uh, walk through the rubble of, of the dead cities and civilization before us, and try to... Um, obviously keep yourself alive, but go through the process of rebuilding your own society and then progressing back through history. But how would you know what to do? Surely we'd need access to some kind of information. And in a post-apocalyptic world, it's not like we'll be able to Google things or access Wikipedia. I mean, there are devices you can essentially download Wikipedia in its entirety, text only without the images, and you can have that on on a handheld device. One of the projects I did for the knowledge was to uh, basically mod, to hack a Kindle, which is, is a wonderful piece of modern technology. You can have an entire library in the palm of your hand. You can have 10,000 books in the palm of your hand with a Kindle and load it up with the knowledge book and you know, 9,999 other books about useful information, how to do things, how to make things. But the problem is that you would need some way of recharging that Kindle. Otherwise, you'd have the, the great... Um, angst of having all the world's information in the palm of your hand but no way of reading anymore because the batteries have died you can't just plug it into the wall so I modded my Kindle to make it solar powered I I soldered together a load of uh, recovered solar panels wired all together with a tapping wire stuck it to the back of um, a a Kindle case and so now this repository of human knowledge could uh, in principle at least maintain that kind of seed that kernel of the most useful human understanding for generations to come if the world ever were to end if you did have this repository of the most useful information, stuff that you wouldn't have to rediscover or reinvent yourselves. You could genuinely accelerate what took us, let's say, 10,000 years the first time round to go from living in in caves and the first inklings of of putting seeds into the ground deliberately with agriculture and, and, and cultivation and farming, all the way up to the modern world of antibiotics and internal combustion engines and electricity, you could accelerate that 10,000 years to, to perhaps a few hundred or maybe a few generations. Knowledge is one thing, but putting it into practice is another story. So what I, what I looked at for the knowledge was basically break down all that modern civilization provides and does for us today into different themes, into different blocks of knowledge or, or capability. And clearly this goes from the really fundamental stuff like, how do I not starve to death? What, what, is the, what is the real basics and fundamentals of agriculture and making sure you can get reliable food to come out of a muddy field every year? And then all the way through uh, different ways of preserving food or the elements of kind of medicine and, and healthcare. How do you stop yourself getting sick? How, how do you do the basics of, of, of chemistry? So it's everything from kind of charcoal and useful sources of fuel to substances 
that we utterly rely upon today, but you may not have even heard of the name before. So things like soda or potash or lime, and more recently sulfuric acid, is basically the, the linchpin of everything we do in the modern world. So I talk about how you would make those basic substances for yourself by extracting them out of the environment, like, like we've been doing you know, for hundreds of years. And then all the way through communication technologies and, and transport and, and machinery. How do you use machinery to move things and do things for you so you don't have to break your own back or use your own muscles or hitch up draft animals like oxen or horse? One of my favourite things I found out when I was researching for the knowledge is that you can indeed run a car without access to crude oil, without any diesel or petrol. And it turns out you can run a car using nothing more than wood as fuel. And the process behind this is known as gasification. And what you do is basically burn the wood. You heat the wood without allow allowing much oxygen to get in. And if you heat that wood, it breaks down, undergoes pyrolysis and heat of its own fire and releases lots of gases and vapours and smoke, which is itself combustible. And you filter that a bit and pass that mixture of gases from the wood uh, down into the bonnet of your car, into the engine cylinders, where you only then allow those gases to mix with oxygen and explode usefully in the engine of your car. So you can drive a car using wood as fuel. It seems we may be more capable of rebooting the world than you'd initially think. But what would happen if humans were wiped out completely, along with some other species? What would happen to the planet? Matthew Wills is a professor of evolutionary paleobiology at the University of Bath. He told me what previous mass extinctions on Earth, such as the one that killed off the dinosaurs, can tell us about nature's ability to reboot. Well, there's some evidence that if you're an ecological specialist, you're going to fare rather poorly, and if you're a generalist, you'll do rather better. So scavengers and things that can change their strategy more freely might be more likely to survive. Um, being big is also not good during a mass extinction. So uh, if you look at the dinosaur extinction, nothing bigger than about 25 kilograms makes it through. And if you're widely distributed geographically, that may confer some advantage, although the sorts of things that happen at mass extinctions tend to have uh, global consequences. And more particularly, actually, um, different groups uh, do better and worse. So although all the dinosaurs go extinct, all non-avian dinosaurs, of course, birds survive, mammals survive, crocodiles also survive, and it's really quite a puzzle to know why. The other thing we can learn is they tend to be game changers. So they often shake things up and reboot the system. Uh, so even where groups aren't knocked out entirely, they may be depleted enough to give other groups that are waiting in the wings a chance to come in and fill the ecological space that's left. I suppose the most famous example is the extinction of the dinosaurs and what happens with mammals. They come in and fill this ecological vacuum. Now it's time for the big question. It may not be very likely, but what if all life were wiped out? Could evolution restart then? Well, it turns out that it's actually a bit of a mystery how life first arose, so we don't really know how likely it is to restart from scratch. Most scientists believe we'd need to have some sort of molecules with the ability to replicate themselves in order for cells to develop in the first place. One of the fascinating things when we look at the history of life on Earth is how soon we find evidence of bacterial life and how long it takes after that bacterial life uh, appears for the first cells with, for example, a nucleus to evolve. It's about another billion years. 
And then how long after that it takes for the first uh, multicellular animals to appear, about another two billion years again after that. So it's quite possible that life re-evolving might get stuck at that single-celled stage. So that seems to be a hump that may be quite difficult to get over. But if we assume that you do, if we assume that you start to evolve multicellular organisms, if that were to be repeated, uh, then as soon as you start sticking cells together, you encounter a number of problems. Uh, one is that you need to be able to transport gases and nutrients around this body that you're starting to produce. And you either become very flat and rely upon diffusion, or you have to have a circulatory system. Uh, you probably have some way of more efficiently processing food, so you probably develop a gut that goes from the mouth through the animal. So if you have a, a simple animal with a gut, it may well be that this, if it's a predatory animal, it wants to pursue uh, food. That means that you probably want to move towards your prey item. Uh, that probably means that you want teeth to grasp hold of the prey item. You want to see where you're going or you want to sense where you're going. So you put your sensory organs at one end of the animal and that becomes a head. So you've now got a head and a tail. So it might not be completely crazy to assume that if evolution did restart, it would give rise to some sort of creatures with legs, jaws and teeth, much like we have today. The next level would be intelligence. How would that evolve? It seems that a relatively large brain and, and some degree of tool use and the ability to solve problems are correlated in some way. Now, in humans, our ability to use tools is vastly, vastly, vastly uh, more developed than uh, what we see in any of the groups. And we think this is at least partly the result of bipedalism, of freeing up the front limbs, uh, and perhaps also because of the dexterity of our, our fingers. Um, so things like flippers and noses and beaks and suckered arms are much less dexterous, and we can't, they can't manipulate objects to anything like the same degree, or indeed shape their environment as, as hands can. So if intelligent life were to re-evolve, would these creatures necessarily look like intelligent animals today? Or could we see the rise of super-intelligent insects, for example? Insects are massively successful. Why haven't they cracked the problem of intelligence? Well, for intelligence, you probably need a reasonably large uh, brain. And for a reasonably large brain, you probably need reasonably large size. If you can't get to a certain size, it's quite possible that you can't develop a, a brain, a neural system capable of, of the, the necessary complexity for intelligence. Now, insects and arthropods in general have their skeleton on the outside. Uh, this means that as you grow, you have to break that down and build a new one. So you go through a phase where you're rather floppy. This means that insects with their exoskeletons are unlikely to get big enough to develop intelligence. But it does seem that if evolution did restart, it could give rise to intelligent beings. Realistically, it won't come to that. Few apocalyptic events, even a nuclear disaster, have the capacity to wipe out life entirely. So it might be worth prepping those Kindles just in case. So, Will, what do you think about solar-powered Kindles? Solar-powered Kindles? As long as I've got my iPhone and some form of, you know, even if I rig up a kind of hamster to a wheel and uh, <laughs> have that going, I think I'll be 
I'll be fine. I mean, there wouldn't be any 3G, but if I cease to have my iPhone, civilization has just finished anyway. So I think that's the almost the defining moment of civilizational collapse. There will almost certainly be no cloud. There will be no cloud, no. Just, um, just a very black one. But we better move on to our next instalment of Reboots. We turn to France, which is gearing up to its presidential election next year. And one of the country's most colourful figures there is hoping to make a comeback. Yep, remember Nicolas Sarkozy? Once known as the Bling President, he's now seeking to portray himself as the steady hand the country needs after several rough years. This kind of political resurrection, we hear, is actually quite a common game to play in France, as our politics editor Laura Hood found out. After five years at the head of the state, my involvement in the life of my country will be different from now on. So said the fallen French president Nicolas Sarkozy as he conceded defeat to his socialist rival François Hollande in the 2012 election. Sarkozy, the bling president, had been ousted from office. Rejected by his people, he announced that he was quitting politics for good. And yet, as a new election looms in 2017, Sarkozy is rebooting in spectacular fashion. He's on a quest to take back the presidency. He thinks he can reignite his political career by promising to save the country from the mess in which it has found itself under Hollande. While comebacks of this kind seem unlikely in many Western democracies, the return of the fallen statesman is a relatively common phenomenon in France. With me to discuss Sarkozy and the myth of the returning hero is John Gaffney, Professor of Politics and Co-Director of the Centre for Europe at Aston University. So John, back in 2012, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy lost the election to Mm. the current uh, President François Hollande. What went wrong for him in that campaign and what led to his downfall? Well, his his presidency was unpopular. Um, He he was at the time um, unpopular, partly because he was president when the financial crisis hit and coping with that um, was extremely difficult. Um, Getting anything done in France has proved very difficult and Sarkozy came in in 2007 saying he would sort everything out and he didn't. So in 2012 Sarkozy lost partly because of his own kind of balance sheet partly because he hadn't done half the things he said he was going to do, partly because people really didn't go for the kind of the bling president, um, and also because um, François Hollande actually seemed to promise a great deal of change. Now, when Sarkozy lost, he said he was leaving politics, And that was quite a clever move because what it meant was his return to politics is seen as a return in that old Gaullist sense because that's exactly what de Gaulle did in '46. He left politics and went off to write his memoirs. And Sarkozy left politics and then kind of went back on his promise to leave politics in the name of France, not in the name of his own self-interest. Well, that's what he says anyway. Do you think he was not being genuine when he said that he was leaving politics forever? Is this a very long game that he's been playing? Uh, I think so, yes. Um, I'm not sure anybody's that genuine in, in, in politics. But, but yes, it was, it was an attempt to show that he was leaving politics so that when he came back, it was all the more dramatic, so that he would be seen as coming back for France rather than for 
uh, personal interest. The personal context is that he sees himself as kind of returning to save France. And the, the political context is the dreadful situation at the moment with the atrocities committed by the people claiming to be part of ISIS and so on, the hundreds of people that have been killed in the last while, which has actually created almost the kind of collective anxiety um, amongst the French, if not a kind of collective near nervous, terrible sense of nervousness and fear. Um, and Sarkozy, the tough guy, if you like, is perfectly fitted to respond to that kind of feeling and worry. Um, because this is a feature of French politics, that it goes back to the beginning of the Republic when de Gaulle came back, if you like, to save France. And so that kind of trait within um, within French political life is actually quite strong. The French do seem to believe that there is a kind of muddle and chaos and difficulty and that a man, and to date it, it, it's, it's been men, will come back the providential man will come back and save France, and it's and it's this that um, Nicolas Sarkozy is trying to to um, reanimate within French political culture. And Charles de Gaulle is the most famous example of the rebooted hero president. Uh, de Gaulle came back. Um, well, he came back twice actually. Uh, he 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 left on the 18th of June, or a broadcast from London on the 18th of June 1940, saying that the French should not surrender to the Germans. He then led the resistance and came back the triumphant hero in 1945. He then said he didn't like the constitution they were developing. It will not last, it will collapse. So he resigned. And then in 1958, they called him back again to solve the Algerian crisis. So he kind of comes back and then revives this tradition of you know, you've got to turn to an almost superhuman character if you want to solve France's problems. And that has informed the Fifth Republic ever since. And that's partly why Hollande is so unpopular, is because he's so unlike that. It's not just that he's not very competent and his presidency isn't going very well. It's that he doesn't, if you like, jive with the myth. But Sarkozy has got some serious problems of his own, um, not least these accusations of financial misconduct during past election campaigns. The problem for Sarkozy, there are several issues, but the main one is whether he didn't simply overspend in the 2012 presidential election, but that, that secret money may in fact have meant that he spent twice as much as you're supposed to spend. These are the accusations, they're only accusations and so on, uh, that this money may have been kind of laundered through um, another organisation called Big Malian. And it's difficult to know exactly whether there are political moves behind this to try and stop him. But having said that, if a trial date is set, it certainly won't be before the presidential election. And if he were to win, uh, he then gets presidential immunity for the um, period of his presidency. So it's difficult to see, if he were to win, that this will go anywhere for many, many years. So, John... In your view, can Sarkozy, the returning hero, overcome that scandal and take office in 2017? Um, 
I kind of fall back on the sense that I'm a political scientist, not a fortune teller, because, you know, we are at a period in French politics now, French political history now, where nobody knows what's going on. It's absolutely chaotic what's happening. Um, can he win? Well, the French presidency is a two-round system. You've got to, you, you go into round one, and there can be as many candidates as you like, and the runoff is between the two leading candidates. If Sarkozy can get through to round two, he will probably beat anybody who stands against him. But will he get through to round two? And might other competitors from within his own party even do a better job? And at the moment, Alain Juppé, the former prime minister, is higher in the polls than Sarkozy. So that's a bit of a problem. Um, but it does look, I said I'm not a fortune teller, it does look at the moment, as things stand, that Marine Le Pen is going to be in round two. So it's a question of whoever can get through will probably beat her, although not that isn't even um, a given anymore, because if it were, say, François Hollande and Marine Le Pen, I'm not sure I'd put my money on um, François Hollande. That was John Gaffney, Professor of Politics at Aston University, talking with The Conversation's politics editor, Laura Hood. Next up, a niche industry that's recently gone through a major reboot. That's the street food scene in the US. There's been this explosive growth in vans selling gourmet food around American cities. It's even been dubbed the food truck revolution. To find out how it all started, I spoke with Daphne Demetri, a researcher at Oxford University's Said Business School. Gourmet and food truck are historically not words you would have heard side by side. But if you've been to an American city recently, you might have noticed the emergence of a huge number of retrofitted catering vans that cook high-quality, interesting food. These street vendors sell creations such as sushi burritos and Korean tacos, or ice cream made on the spot from liquid nitrogen. So in 2008, uh, Chef Roy Choi, who was this heavily tattooed chef out in Los Angeles, professional chef that worked a number of high-end kitchens, started a food truck called Kogi Barbecue. That's Daphne Demetri. She's a researcher at Oxford University's Centre for Corporate Reputation and has looked at the boom with her colleague Todd Schiefling at the University of Michigan. She explained to me how Roy Choi kick-started what's been dubbed America's food truck revolution. There's a number of things that are occurring around this time. So first of all, no one had ever seen anything like this. The history of food trucks and street vending in the U.S. were predominantly dominated by, especially in Los Angeles, uh, what were called taco trucks or loncheros. So they were very stable trucks. They were often positioned. They didn't move around in uh, the Mexican immigrant community. They were known for really cheap, uh, homogeneous products. So tacos and burritos. So food trucks were traditionally quite basic. They didn't move around, and as well as their fairly simple meals, the trucks were not so affectionately referred to as roach coaches. That's roach as in cockroach. It doesn't mean that what they served was not tasty, but questionable sanitation meant you were often at risk of getting food poisoning. Um, And so the street vending had sort of this very lowbrow association. And then Roy Choi comes in, who has his professional kitchen background, 
Um, he's a professionally trained chef and he opens up this Kogi barbecue truck, which not only is now bridging the highbrow and the lowbrow, uh, he's serving upscale cuisine on the street, which is really sort of bizarre um, from what people expect. But he's also fusing these culinary ingredients that you don't expect as well. So the combination of the Korean food and the Mexican food is really comes out of nowhere. And then the third really interesting thing that starts with these trucks is that whereas the previous loncheros and taco trucks were very stable, they didn't move. I mean, they really would stay in the same place. These new gourmet food trucks are quite mobile. They're changing locations daily, and they're using Twitter, which is this brand new social media tool that's emerging in 2008, to tell consumers not only what they're serving every day, but where they're going to be. 2008 was also significant because it marked the start of an economic downturn. The recession meant that starting a restaurant was a lot more difficult than kitting out an old van. Um, Just to give you ideas of cost to start a new food truck, and that's purchasing a brand new food truck, it can be around fifty-five to seventy-five thousand dollars in the U.S. Uh, whereas starting a new restaurant, you can clunk down half a million dollars in some of the big cities. Wow. So it is substantially cheaper, which means that it's a lower barrier of entry for testing out ideas. This helped spur on the success of the gourmet food truck, but it did take a bit of getting used to. People really didn't know quite how to categorize them because they had been so used to the loncheros taco trucks, you know, the hot dog stands in New York. And so they actually, when he first came out, sort of tried to conceptualize him through that lens. So they would say things like, oh, there's this there's this Korean truck that's masquerading as a taco truck. We're really confused as to what this is. And the concept and category of a gourmet food truck, as we call them today, didn't actually emerge for another year. In their research, Daphne and Todd counted just 20 gourmet food trucks in 2008. From 2009 onwards, though, the industry exploded. That year, 360 new vans emerged. In 2010, there were a further 651. And 2011 and 2012 both saw more than 1,000 new food trucks in cities all across the US. The demand is clearly there for them. Gourmet food trucks haven't displaced the old roach coaches. They are tapping into a hungry new market. Food trucks aren't cheap. Uh, Compared to their predecessors, they're about a 25% markup or more uh, than a taco truck or a hot dog uh, stand. So they're not for the people who are looking for like a truly cheap meal. They're for someone who who has a disposable income and can afford to go to these, these trucks. But also you're paying for the experience of closeness to the chef and those who are cooking your food. I mean, there's very little boundaries between you ordering in front of a food truck and where the food is being cooked. So there's more of an intimacy that comes with dining at a food truck than going to a regular restaurant. So they might be more expensive than the traditional hot dog stand or burrito van, but they've become a genuine fine dining option. The rise of what's been dubbed the authenticity economy, where people want products and services that are unique, local and eclectic, means that the gourmet food truck will likely be around for a long time to come. That's it for this episode of The Ant Hill on Rebooting. We'll be back next month where we'll be turning off the lights and exploring the weird and wonderful world of what happens after dark. Thanks to all the academics who spoke to us for this episode on Rebooting. Daphne Demetri, John Gaffney, Lewis Dartnell and Matthew Wills. A big shout out too to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. 
This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by myself and Gemma Ware. The Ant Hill is brought to you by The Conversation UK. We're a news analysis website funded by UK universities and research bodies. Check us out at theconversation.com or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening in. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.